1: We observe today, not a victory of party, but a celebration of
2: freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals.
2: Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great
0: dictator. The
1: Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stand time to attend you when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. This mess.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at Talk Radio. We are, of course, the seekers of truth and justice on this show. We are not going to be misled by politicians. We are not uh, going to allow them to tell us lies. We are not ever going to put up with the sort of nonsense that some of these politicians get away with on other broadcasting outlets. We will always question politicians. We will always ask them, if are you sure that that's a statistic you want to use, I will make sure I get it from you where exactly where you got it from. However... What I do not wish to do is to drag anybody who says something which turns out not to be true through the court system of this country. What is happening right now in a private prosecution against Boris Johnson is quite frankly not only a travesty of justice but a travesty of the political system within which we are all supposed to be working. Just because some bloke who decides he doesn't want to leave the European Union can now crowd fund himself to the tune of a couple of hundred thousand quid and he can try and bring down the best chance we've got of leaving the European Union as a candidate to lead the Tory party, I think is a complete and utter nonsense. I've no idea who this judge is in the Crown Court uh, of La La Land, but she needs to get a proper and and soon upbraid about what her uh, position seems to be. When she wants to operate as a judge, she does not operate as judge, jury and executioner. The idea that Boris Johnson has somehow broken the unwritten law of politics by saying something which turned out not to be true, we might as well start locking up Anna Soubry. We might as well start suing Nick Clegg. We might as well bring David Cameron back and say, I thought you said this was one vote in a lifetime. I thought this was one generation that would have only one chance. What about George Osborne? He said there would be 500,000 people out of work by now if we voted to leave the European Union. Well, that was wrong as well. This is absolutely ill-designed, badly managed and completely misappropriated justice and I think we need to stop it and we need to stop it right now. 0344 499 1000. As Julie Hartley Brewer said we don't want politicians lying to us but it's our job to make sure that they don't get away with it. We don't need to start locking them up and prosecuting them just because we've got some secret agenda against them. 0344 499 1000. I know uh, that you're going to support me on this one. This is Talk Radio. I'm Mike Graham. It's the Independent Republic.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Now, it's come to something, has it not, when you see headlines in newspapers in which uh, basically the former mayor of London, who wasn't even in the government, by the way, when he was campaigning for the referendum uh, to leave in 2016, is somehow now prosecuted by some guy who's got an axe to grind against the uh, leaving situation from the European Union. Uh, The character who we're talking about, of course, uh, is Marcus Ball. He seems to have got a bee in his bonnet. Uh, he's a sort of Gina Miller type figure who doesn't want us to leave the European Union. The problem we've got here is there's too many lawyers, too many experts, too many people who are trying to find ways of stopping us from doing what the public wants us to do. Let's talk to Bob Seely, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, a man we speak to a lot on this show, a man who normally will talk perfect sense. Bob, a very good morning to you.
1: Morning uh That's very nice of you to say that. I hope to, to try to continue in that noble tradition.
3: Well, indeed. I mean, listen, I'm, I hold, hold myself to account. I hold politicians to account. I take great pride in the fact if some politician comes on here and tries to sort of flam me with, with some ridiculous statistic, yeah. which I think is questionable, I question it. But seriously, yeah. we cannot surely be going down this road of prosecuting individual politicians for saying things which turn out not to be true.
1: Yeah, no, it's really bad for our democracy. I mean, we could probably compile quite a good list of people... Who have knowingly lied about uh, about Brexit, uh, about the claims that, uh, all these damaging things that haven't come to pass, and we could probably spend the next few days going around making citizens arrest. Yeah, you know, Nick Clegg, George Osborne, David Cameron, some uh, ex colleagues, some you know, some current colleagues. The list is endless. Yes. Um, So this is very politically motivated. And the problem is with our democracy at the moment is when those people who've lost refuse to accept the result, it damages democracy and you get um, instability, you get people who refuse to play by the rules. And I think that is really damaging.
3: And when I said I think it's uh, about having too many lawyers around, I think that really is quite an important point because there are always lawyers to be found who will be able to make a case for anything. But the idea Uh, that 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 this (laughs) this Crown Court judge has fallen for it, to me, is staggering.
1: Well, yeah, I'm just wondering about about, about this. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm not, one has to be careful what one says when talking about the law and judges, but if judges become politicised, and I wonder if this person has, I'm, I'm not saying so, but I don't know. Um, if judges become politicised and are used by in political argument, then I think it's a really dangerous precedent yeah. and it just weakens our democracy. One may or may not like a judge's politics, but judges need to keep politics out of their decision-making. And actually... <laughs> I think she's wrong in substance and I think she's wrong in the politics of this, but she's certainly wrong in the law uh, and it's a really dangerous and foolish step.
3: Well, apart from anything else, just on the law and on on, on the judicial situation, she made a point and made a very clear point that it was for the government not to campaign during referendums, but in fact, Boris Johnson wasn't in the government. He was the mayor of London. So, you know, she's got that, she she makes the exception and then ignores
1: it. Uh, I think she's hopelessly confused and... and, uh, if this is the quality of, of judges in this country, God help us.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Because like, like you say, we don't want to go down the American route, where I, I've, I've seen people going to local polling stations on 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 vote on election day, voting for judges, voting for yeah. sheriffs, voting for police chiefs.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- yeah, There's an argument. Okay, there's, there's arguments for and against that. But what you what you certainly, I wouldn't. You know, on the whole, I wouldn't want that, um, uh, especially not with judges, because you expect them to be properly vetted and not. Uh, vulnerable to popular whip, mm. but for or against one's own position, whatever one's politics. You expect them to be independent and to uphold a non-politicised version of the law. And when they don't, it is genuinely troubling. And I think this is a ridiculous uh, a ridiculous decision. Yeah. I think it can be far more easily... I mean, if one was prosecuting politicians for lying, let's get the Treasury in the dock for all the claims they made <laughs> uh, after the 2016 referendum, because that is provably false.
3: And, and all the economic well, forecasts that get made by various chancellors uh, uh, through the years.
1: Uh, absolutely, and if I, you know, if I was the uh, governor of the Bank of England, I'd probably be getting my defence lawyers ready by now yeah. for facing life in prison, uh, if I, you want to go down that route.
3: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, as a general kind of philosophical point, have we reached this kind of nadir now in British politics where there is no such thing as truth? Because, you know, your truth yeah. isn't the same as my <laughs> truth, his truth is different from, from
1: her truth, it's ridiculous. I, I think there's a lot of silly noise and damaging noise and a lot of insults being fly, uh, uh, flying around. And if you look at some people who are hard over Remainers, I think their, their contempt for the vote and their contempt for the people who voted is a genuinely an extremely unattractive thing mm. to see. Uh, and their contempt for democracy. It comes back to the original point. Democracy works when everyone accepts the results. And if some people don't accept the results and think that people are too stupid or too old to have a valid opinion then you sort of get in the realms of a very sort of fascistic mindset where some votes count more than others and you're going to count your votes more than other people's. And then you're in the sort of, you know, Eastern Eastern European mm. territory in the bad old days.
3: Yeah, exactly right. And a lot of people do fear that that is where we are headed because I was having a conversation with somebody last night about this. The bottom line for me is that if you want to encourage a sort of Donald Trump-esque candidate to emerge out of the wilderness, this is exactly how you do it because people lose faith in the system, they lose faith in democracy, they lose faith in... The the way yeah, that people uh, are represented in Parliament, and the fact that somebody like John Burko yesterday announces in America uh, that he's actually thinking he might just hang around for the pre- precise purpose of blocking Brexit, people are going, "What is going on?"
1: Yeah, it's it's it, 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 it's really bad. And I'm not quite sure where to where to start with that. We, yeah, uh, 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 this is, I mean, for, for my for my political party's part, this is like a marriage that's gone wrong, and one side has done something really dumb. Mm. we basically said to our spouse, whether it's a he or a she. Love, you know, you're going to decide this issue and we're going to respect you. Our spouse has come back with a decision that maybe we weren't entirely expecting. I mean, I voted for Brexit. I'm happy with it. Um, But our spouse has come back with a decision that some of us don't like. And effectively, what we've done is we patted him or her on the knee and said, Love, you're too stupid to make the decision. I'm changing my mind. So not only is our spouse irritated by the fact that we are ignoring her decision or his, but what they are also irritated about is, is it now it's a lack of trust. So what we need to do is twofold. We need to deliver on the results of the referendum, and then we need to be exceptionally, you know, in political terms, we need to do an awful lot of flower buying and, you know, washing up and doing all jobs around the house <laughs> for the next year or two to get ourselves back in our spouse's good books. And that's basically what's happened between our party and the electorate, and to be honest, probably all parties and the electorate. Yeah. So we need to pull our finger out.
3: And I think the Tory party also has to stop doing what it does very well, which is kind of eating itself from within, whereby we get this ridiculous kind of uh, public face of the Tory party uh, with people saying, oh yes, we're going to campaign cleanly, which is always a very bad kind of announcement to make, because immediately that you say we're all going to campaign cleanly, everybody knows that that's exactly what's not going to happen, and there's going to be all sorts of briefing and counter-briefing going on.
1: I really hope on that, that that when people do make criticisms, they're just you know in the in the open, and that we above all have a clean debate. I'm certainly not going to take part in a dirty one. Uh, because I want to have a decent reputation, and my colleagues who want to continue to have a decent reputation should be doing right, quite yes. frankly.
3: And what about those who say, actually, this is more damaging to Boris's leadership ambitions than it is anything else, really? It's not going to, I mean, nobody's that surprised that Boris Johnson is being targeted because he yeah. is the kind of uh, the front runner, if you like, even though Michael Gove seemed to rise above him slightly in the polls the other day. You know, he is the front runner. He is what the Remain um, yeah. sort of group see as, as the, the, the nightmare scenario.
1: Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm supporting Go uh, because I think we need someone who will expose Corbyn in Parliament. I think we need someone who will renew us in office. And I think we need somebody who respects and is going to try to protect and preserve the Union and deliver Brexit. But having said that, I'm very protective of Boris, because Boris is a, a good bloke. And I found him, to be honest, to be thoroughly reliable, despite people telling me that he wasn't. Right. And, and a thoroughly decent guy. And when there is a welter of criticism that he's going to face, probably, but actually a lot of it, a lot of it is unfair. For people like me, I feel rather protective towards my colleague because I think the way that he is being targeted by vindictive, anti-democratic, extremist, obsessive Remainers is incredibly bad for our democracy. So absolutely, I will defend Boris on this. In the short term, it may actually make him more popular because people will see him as someone who is being bullied by the Gina Millers or whatever, this 29-year-old who seems to be spending quite freely other people's money or having a good time when he's trying to take Boris to court. Mm. You know, all these other people... Um, And I I think people are going to be defensive of Boris and say, good on you for standing up for us, the people, because there's 17 million of us who voted Brexit.
3: Well, this could all backfire horribly uh, on the guy who's bringing the action, couldn't it? Because at the end of the day, Marcus Ball uh, is now going to have his life turned upside down by the newspapers. The Daily Mail today has got a piece about uh, how he managed to take £24,000 out of the fighting fund to pay himself. You know, he's not going to be painted in the finest light because whatever he may say, he's not doing this to save democracy or to stop politicians lying. He's got... Uh and uh, a, a secret agenda.
1: Uh, I'm, well, I'm wary of his... I, I don't know what his motives are. Apparently, he was deleting tweets that, that said basically he's trying to stop Brexit, right. which completely undermines this judge's yeah. unwise, unwise judgment. Mm. But, you know, if he starts... I, I mean, I don't know the basis on which he's got all this money, but if he's got all this money for a court case... Uh, and he's spending it on putting himself up in London or self defense classes or God knows what else. Mm. Uh, maybe people who are giving him money are going to be saying, Oh, maybe I won't be giving you money in future, and actually, you're meant to be using that for a court case uh, and not for yourself. But yes, it is I don't a, ver- want to it's a very I don't murky want to comment on, on but, him yeah. because I think he's pretty insignificant, no disrespect to him. And I think there are many, many much more significant arguments to be had about what is happening and the way that people like Adonis or this guy or Gina Miller the way they hold their fellow countrymen uh, in, 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 in respect or lack of it, which I think is very damaging mm. for us. And as I say, democracy rests, rests on everyone accepting the results. And when some people don't, then that is a bad thing for the stability of our political... Um, yeah. And political also,
3: system. no matter how bad our system may have become, um, it is still a system which works. It is still a democratic system. None of these people, like Lord Adonis, uh, like um, Gina Miller, like this guy, as you yeah. say, are uh, you can't do anything with them. They're not elected representatives of the people. Adonis tried to become one, and guess what? They didn't fancy that very much, and so he's never no, been elected anywhere
1: in his life. It's, it's really bizarre because he was saying that the BBC, were, he put out a tweet this morning, he said the BBC should be up in the dock or something. Oh, yeah. So not only does he want Boris tried, but he wants the BBC put on trial as well. Uh, and considering there is a, a, a you know, <laughs> reasonably accepted to be a sort of soft left, slight bias on the way the BBC does things, we, you know, we can all live with it, it's not the end of the world, for a Remain campaigner who was a member of, who was standing for the Labour Party at the time, now to say that the BBC should be put on trial, I mean, this is just just incredible it really is absolutely unbelievable crazy. and
3: also who is he speaking for you know with whose uh, authority does he issue these dictums and why should we do what he wants
1: i think he's speaking to other people uh, basically sort of urban elites and people who um are really obsessed by remain for whom membership of the european union is is a sort of ideological step rather than just practical trading and political arrangement um, and who are resting a great deal of psychological and emotional energy on on being part of it? And mm. the British people voted against it. I'm afraid to say some people just can't accept the results. And is there any I'm is, a, is a there any word.
3: part of you which now sees uh, a second referendum looming up large before we see maybe another general election? Because well, in the end, it might be that the Leave voters or the Leave um, um, you know the Leave side, if you like, for want of a better word, should just say, all right, then let's have a second referendum because Leave's going to win it
1: anyway. Well, okay, I'm trying to. The only logical, okay, the best thing that I can do, in my own opinion, is to stick to what we said in our manifesto. And I haven't got it in front of me, but it was basically we will leave and we'll we'll try to get a deal. Mm. So I want to leave with a meaningful Brexit deal. That means probably not a customs union unless at the next election we absolutely have the chance to turn that into something much more than a customs union. But even that I'm pretty uncomfortable with. I want us to leave on the 31st of October because we told the British people we would leave. I didn't vote for the extension, and I'm, uh, I'm not happy that we've got an extension up till the 31st. I felt we should have left with or without a deal because we need to... Re- the most important thing now is not so much Brexit, but it's actually our relationship with, with the, the people of this country. And it's about delivering on the promises that we made. And the British people gave us an instruction. At the general election, they gave us another instruction because 80% of votes went to the two major parties. Both who said, we respect the result. And last week, they gave us another. At this point, they're shouting. They're not telling us what they want us to do. They're shouting at us what we need to be doing. And some of us, I'm afraid to say, including senior members of the government, are still tone deaf to what they are being told by the British people.
3: They're still not getting it, is a lot of the messages I'm getting on Twitter. Bob, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Bob Seeley, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, supporting Michael Gove for the leadership of the Conservative Party, but does not agree that Boris Johnson should be targeted in this way uh, by this character who seems to think that it is God-given right to protect democracy single-handed. I mean, who is this Marcus Ball character? I want to know 03444991000 is the number this is Talk Radio
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio
3: Now the suggestion at the moment is that we are sort of um, hamstringing ourselves and hamstringing the future uh, entrepreneurs and business people of the, of uh, uh, of the next few decades by loading them up with loads and loads of debt so that when they leave university with a degree which may or may not be worthwhile having spent 3 or possibly 4 years doing it They owe loads of money and they'll never really be able to pay it back. Let's talk to Nick Hillman, who's director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. Nick, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I think there's there's probably no doubt, I think everybody would agree, that we've now got a situation where too many people have got too much debt uh, and they're never really going to be able to pay it off.
4: Well... (laughs) That and it seems logical, but young people have been voting with their feet and going to universities in very big numbers. And the report—I mean, for me, it feels like Christmas Day Day, today—a 250-page report on the finer details of higher education. You know, it it, it, is fantastic, and it reads into a lot of detail. And one of the things it says is actually, it it thinks too many people might be going to university and not enough further education colleges, you know, which is a contentious argument, but they've got some strong evidence.
3: Yes, I think that's true, though, because as I say, I mean, when I, I seem to recall, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here on the statistics, but when I went to university back in, uh, I don't even want to say the late 70s, it but it was the very late 70s, um, I think it was only about 5% uh, of, the, of, the, of the, the the then sort of teenage population was going, and then it rose up to about 30%, and I think now it's, it's over 50%, isn't it? It's
4: almost bang on 50%. It's been growing almost every year since you went. Right. Uh, And it's almost about 50%. So, um, you know, employers recruit graduates, they pay graduates more. But the feeling which is in the report is that we're not so good as a country at technical, vocational education. So we're sending lots of people through universities to get arts degrees like I did, uh, and maybe not enough. Uh, of the skills that employers say are currently in shortage. Right.
3: I mean, funnily enough, we're going to be talking later on in the show about how we need um, uh, more vets in this country, apparently. I hear all the time that we need more nurses, we need more doctors, you know, we need more people who are skilled in one particular field. Uh, but at the moment, it's a field that we keep in, uh, sort of encouraging people to come in from abroad to do.
4: Yes, and it's interesting. All three of those occupations have very high training costs. Yeah. So obviously, training a doctor or a that takes a long time and costs a lot of money. So there are some artificial restrictions. You know, the government says they'll only fund a certain number of doctor places each year. And, you know, if I'm – not, I'm not making pro or anti-Brexit point – but if Brexit means it's harder for employers to recruit people from abroad – we are going to have to recruit
3: more people here. Mm, exactly right. And is it possible, for example, to dissect the higher education sector more? Because presumably at the moment, there's a pretty standard fee. Because one of my sort of problems with the Blair encouragement of universities to, to become businesses, if you like, which is what many of them are, was to say, oh, you can charge up to £9,000 a year, which, of course, they all immediately did. I mean, nobody was going to go, oh, well, we, can, we could charge 9000 but we're only going to charge you five.
4: And so you're, well, Blair introduced £3,000 fees, maximum, and they all charged that. Then the coalition introduced £9,000, and they all went immediately right. to the maximum. And the report is worried about that. So what they say is, look, £9,000 is actually not enough to train a doctor or an engineer, but it's more than enough to teach a, a, a classroom subject like history right. or English language. So if I, guess, I guess
3: what I'm saying is should the universities themselves, the, the institutions, not be better at sort of pricing different degree courses differently?
4: Well, what they would say to you is, look, the more money we have, you know, we're not a profit-making company, the more money we have, then the better the education will be because we will reinvest the money in people's education. But what the report's worried about, and this is fair, is that people are taking on debts that are so big, most people aren't paying them back in their entirety. And so what the report says is have lower debts for all but have slightly bigger government contributions to universities to cover those extra teaching costs Mm. and extend the repayment period, which may be unpopular, but extend the repayment period so that more graduates pay off the whole of their loans.
3: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say to me, and many people have tweeted me today about this, that the big problem for a lot of people is the interest. And if the interest was either less uh, reduced or done away with altogether, that would be fairer. Yes, the interest can be high. So
4: it can be 3% above inflation. Right. So some years that can be 6 7% interest. And what the report today recommends, which I think is sensible, is get rid of real interest, at least for people while they're studying. Mm. Because what happens is you leave your degree, open your first statement from the student loan company, and you're shocked by how much interest has been added. Yeah. So they say don't get rid of interest for everybody, but at least get rid of it
3: while you're studying yeah and also the kind of the fear factor is something that people worry about i mean i was talking to some of the people in the office here you know who've gone through the system and basically if you've got a debt that's hanging over you albeit that you might be thinking i don't have to pay it back absolutely it's not that important you know i'll I'll make enough money one day and finally i'll do it you know but there's nothing worse than having a kind of it's almost like an albatross around your neck and you can't forget that it's there
4: Yes, I think that's fair. And the loans will come down if the report is implemented because, for example, maintenance grants will come back in. Um, But I've got to say, that fear that people in your office express is much more common among parents than it is among students Mm. themselves. Students put off the worry for for another day Whereas the parents do worry about it for their young children.
3: Right now, also, here's, how about this? And you probably know this, being a, 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 a sort of an education specialist. But in Spain, apparently, the system is that you you get rewarded for doing well academically. So, for example, if you do uh, get a distinction one year, get a sort of you're, you're aiming for a first, your fees will actually be reduced the following year. That seems to me to be a great idea.
0: Yeah,
4: I have heard that idea before, and you have. It. it is interesting. I don't think it's perfect because. For example, what if your parents die while you're at university? It screws up your academic achievements, even though you may be working quite hard. Or you're, you're having to work very long hours in a shop because you haven't got enough money to pay your rent. So you have to be a bit careful with mechanisms like that. But I, I think it's certainly right that if people do well educationally, it's right that that's rewarded in some way or other. Our system tries to reflect it by saying, well, if you get a better paid job afterwards because you've done better, you'll pay off your loan more quickly. But of course, if you go become a nurse, you might be a brilliant student. You're never going to be that well paid because, as a country, we've chosen not to pay nurses. <clears business. throat> may be enough. Right.
3: And as far as the actual repayment system goes, presumably there's going to be a lot of people. We're hearing from this report that many people will still be paying it off in their 60s. There'll be people who, unfortunately, never pay it off or maybe who die a bit younger. There'll be people who just don't ever pay it off.
4: Yes, and and in a way, that's a positive feature of the system because it means if you never get a well-paid job or you have a long-term health condition or something that means you can't earn lots of money, then the government will eventually pay off that debt for you. But the recommendation today is that 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 should not happen until 40 years after you've graduated Mm. rather than 30 years currently. So it will be hanging over you until you're close to retirement age. And, And there are good arguments as to why they're recommending that. It makes the system more affordable. But other people are pointing out on social media, are the Conservatives really going to go into the next election in their manifesto saying one of our great popular policies is going to be make you repay your student loan for 10 years longer? It's an interesting question politically, how that lands.
3: Well, it is. And it's also an interesting question politically overall as to whether the government gets involved in and sort of discouraging people from going to higher education establishments uh, when it might be better for them not to bother and to try and get themselves into the into the, uh, the sort of employment market. Yes, that's
4: true. Although we are living longer and I think despite everything in today's report, the appeal of a three-year... Degree living away from home with other people your same age uh, may continue to be quite strong for many of us. Our university days are some of the best days of our lives, and that will be
3: depressing,
4: I think. That's depressing, well,
3: isn't it? I mean, if well, those are the best days of your life, then you need to sharpen up your life.
4: Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, it, I think it depends what you're doing. So, if the degree you're obtaining while you're at university turns out to really improve your life chances afterwards and you have a good time while you're getting it then that's great but one of the concerns in the report and this you know let's be honest universities pay my salary but one of the criticisms in the report of universities that is valid is that some of the courses they're putting on are not delivering much better life outcomes for their students so the students are taking on large debts and not necessarily getting very different types of jobs or more highly skilled work afterwards. So that's not really
3: working for anybody because the government's not getting the money back. Um, The the, the, the individual's not getting a better education to the point where their life is improving and they're making more money. So there's not much point in doing it, is there? But they've made the choice to do that. So
4: for most people, most of the time, university works out. At the extremes, and you're talking about one extreme that doesn't work out, you know, that is sad. And one of the things the report today says is it shines a spotlight on universities and says, look, you really need to get your own house in order on some of these courses, which are costing taxpayers and graduates money unnecessarily. And unless it goes on and it says unless you get your own house in order, the government should uh, start cracking down on you. So, so that is a really important area to watch, I think, yes. the next... Yes, because, years. I mean,
3: the, th- the two things, I suppose, that worry me the most here are the, 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 the higher educational institutions have become businesses. The people that run them are paid vast amounts of money now. And I know that you might say, well, not everybody is, but there's lots and lots of chancellors of universities pocketing, you know, not far off half a million quid a year, which to a lot of people is way over and above... Uh, the sort of the pay grade that they should be on. I know what all the arguments are, but for for me, it's just one of my bugbears. And the other thing that I would say about universities and higher education is that it's very class-driven. And it's very difficult if you're a young, white, working-class boy from Derby, for example, to go to university if none of your parents or none of your friends or none of your uh, siblings have ever gone.
4: I I accept most of that. I think the the public relations disaster of Vice-Chancellor's pay has been a disaster for the sector, and, I, and you're right, White working-class boys have the lowest entry rates of all into higher education. Right. Um, and there are things on uh, access to higher education uh, in the report. Um, m- my view is we shouldn't forget, though, how important economic um, agents, uh, to use a horrible word, uh, universities are to their towns and cities. You know, towns, universities are often the biggest employer in a town or city. They bring thousands of students to spend money in the local shops and the businesses. They're often helping companies develop innovations and take them to market to be successful in the future. So the way that um, universities operate is not just teaching students, they're also integral to our whole economic success
3: that may well be but i don't think you can have both really i mean you can but you can't sell both if you know what i mean you can't say on the one hand universities are a great social experiment for people to go and enjoy while denying access to them to a vast swathe of people in the country because they haven't got the right class and secondly well, you're then saying it's a it's a business opportunity for so many people well it can't be both
4: well one of the things the report today recommends is that universities work much more closely with further education colleges and pull disadvantaged people through the further education college and then on to higher education to improve their life chances and it talks about thinking about further education and higher education operating more cooperatively Mm. more together that is sensible they do that in other countries that is sensible and of course one of the ways of judging whether today's report is a success if it's ever implemented uh, is whether that happens. And, of course, one of the oddities about today is that Prime Minister has launched this big new report, but it'll be her successor that decides whether any of the changes in that report get implemented yeah. or not. And well, that so is the trouble, isn't it? Pattern.
3: That is the trouble, because, I mean, let's face it, let's, let's stick with Derby, since I introduced it as the only town that, uh, in, in Britain that I should pick on. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the University of Derby actually was a university for people from Derby, from perhaps, you know, less well-off backgrounds, rather than importing a lot of middle-class kids from Surrey uh, that they could sell beer to?
4: Well, I mean, as someone, someone who grew up in Oxfordshire but went to school in Derbyshire, uh, um, you know, I, I have a soft spot for Derbyshire, and I, I would like Derby University to be somewhere that is properly integrated with their local community and their local employers, and they are. You know, there's some great big manufacturing companies in Derby, Um, But also, you know, why why shouldn't, if someone wants to work in the, let's say, uh, the aerospace industry, you know, Rolls-Royce engines in Derby, Mm. has a good relationship with Derby University, why shouldn't someone from Surrey go to Derby to learn about... I'm not
3: saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying that it shouldn't purely and simply be, let's import a load of middle-class people to our university and then create a load of employment in Derby for some working-class kids who are never going to get anywhere. Yeah,
4: and I accept that. And it is absolutely true that although there are far more, people from poorer families at university than ever before. There are still far, far, far more middle class people. And uh, and I don't want fewer middle-class people to go to university. I want, you know, I hope my own children go to university. What I, what I want is more open opportunities for everybody. Hmm. And, uh, and less, uh, and less and
3: wasted opportunities, I think, as well. Uh, sorry, uh, I missed that. I uh, So fewer, fewer and less wasted opportunities as well, yes. you know. Fewer, yes. fewer people going somewhere for three years ending up costing the taxpayer loads of money, making somebody rich in a a university, but not really making themselves any richer. Yes,
4: and and one good thing the government has done is make the data much more available. So it's now possible for people to find out which courses lead to really good outcomes in the labour market and good salaries and, and secure work and which ones don't. Uh, and and and, and that is useful information yeah and
3: just one final question nick where would you be on shortening the course for example many people say to me why not make the course a little bit more concentrated and do it in two years instead of three i've got a text a tweet here from somebody called felix who says my daughter is in year two of a ba she had no lectures after easter last of only two exams yesterday the cost is astronomical and the taught hours far lower than when i went in the 80s
4: Yes. I mean, those options exist, by the way. There are universities that offer two-year degrees already, Staffordshire, Buckingham, where I'm actually a governor. Um, So they do exist. And not every young person wants that because they want to be at university for as long as possible. And our degrees, even our three-year degrees, are shorter than in many other countries. Mm -hmm. In Germany, typically, you stay at university much longer. Um, But if people want more accelerated degrees... They do exist, and they should root them out, and they have very good outcomes for the people that do do them.
3: Okay, Nick, thank you very much indeed. Nick Hillman there, Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute on this government report, uh, which has come out basically telling us what we probably already knew, that the uh, tuition fees are too high, too many people are getting taught lessons and taking degrees which are not actually helping them out. Some student loans are not going to be paid back until people are in their 60s. Some I'm never going to be paid back. I want to hear from you on that one. 0344 499 1000. You'll have kids at university or kids who didn't go to university or kids who've been trained to do a job. I want to hear all your stories. You can tweet us as well.
5: At Talk Radio, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does.
4: They charge you a lot.
3: Lots more going on as well, of course. Coming up, we're going to find out what's wrong with Julian Assange, who apparently was too ill to appear in court today. He was due uh, to appear and uh, have a uh, hearing about the extradition to the United States of America, where, of course, he doesn't want to go. Uh, We'll be talking to the Henry Jackson Society about that. But let's open up uh, the uh, debate this morning here, or this afternoon, I should say, uh, with Chai Patel, who's Legal Policy Director uh, at the JCWI, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Chai, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we've heard an awful lot about um, how the government's going to change the the rules on certain uh, types of immigration, on certain types of freedom of movement, that people will have to come here uh, only if they can promise that they're going to be making more than 30000 a year and all of that kind of stuff. This is a slightly different report, is it not, in which we're being told that specific jobs are needing to be filled, specifically vets for some reason uh, and some others.
2: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make very much sense. And it's, it's this problem that the, the, the particularly, I think a lot of governments have had this, but particularly this government, um, where they've made completely unrealistic promises on immigration. Yeah. They've claimed that they can bring immigration down to sort of you know levels that, that basically predate the current way that our economy is set up, um, the current way that our markets work. Um, and it's always known that that's going to cause huge problems for certain industry sectors. And so what it's sort of saying now is we're just going to keep um, bowing to pressure from individual groups that make a good case that mm. actually it's not going to work for them. And what you have then is you have a centrally planned economy where someone you know, in the home office or, or in the cabinet basically micromanages how many chefs you allow in or right. how many... And, and that's just not the way that, a cons- I mean, particularly a conservative government should be looking to manage the economy. It sort of makes mm. absolutely no sense for them to talk about benefits of, of markets and of supply and demand and then to say that, but we'll still be able to predict you know how many vets we're going to need next year it, yeah it, it, it's you're, abso- you're absolutely
3: right chai because it's kind of uh, it's a sort of part-time economic models that they're using isn't it because they're not using them on every absolute thing that they could be using them on and was, wasn't there a problem with chefs relatively recently um where an awful lot of indian restaurants were saying look we can't get enough chefs in from bangladesh and we can't get enough chefs in from the subcontinent because of some immigration rule that was causing them a problem
2: yeah, absolutely. And and you've got the same things happening across different industries. I mean obviously you know, the most urgent problems um around particularly this idea of the thirty thousand pound threshold is with essential public services like the NHS. Right. Where um you know and, and partly this is to do with just the NHS has always relied very much on um on 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 experts um and nurses and qualified experts from overseas, but also, you know, it as you sort of referred to earlier, it's combined with a failure to sort of invest over the long term um, in training in this country, which means that when free movement ends, um, and and we're already starting to see people not coming because they're worried about, from Europe, because they're worried about what's going to happen in future. But when it ends, you're going to have this sudden, huge shortfall um, in, in skilled staff, working in the NHS, working in care homes, um, because the government's decided that skilled means people that earn over 30,000 mm. pounds a year. And I think your listeners will know that, you know, e- almost everyone who works, in fact, everyone who works has a particular set of skills. And particularly when you're talking about people um, who are caring for the elderly, who are, who are caring in hospitals, who are nurses, you know, have to carry out all kinds of sort of expert procedures because doctors are doing other jobs. Um you've sort of got a recipe for disaster
5: yeah.
2: and um, who, and in which, really important services.
3: Yeah, I mean, which genius came up with this £30,000 threshold? Because apart from the fact that it's higher than the average uh, annual uh, wage, um, it, it just seems entirely arbitrary, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, well, the one important thing is not to let the government get away with the idea that this was an independent Migration Advisory Committee that uh-huh. came up with a threshold. Because the Migration Observ- um, Advisory Committee is a set of independent experts who the government asks questions of. And the way the government frames those questions very much determines the kinds of answers you get back. So the government has basically asked questions around um, where certain skills thresholds are set and Mm. what kinds of jobs are needed. They get, you know, you ask a very simplistic question, you're obviously going to get an answer that's not going to work for everyone. Um, And the government should really have taken what Mac said as a guide for roughly how you sort of think about future migration. Instead, they very much have tried to take this as a sort of arbitrary salary threshold, which says you're skilled if you're above £30,000, you're unskilled if you're below that. And that's obviously ridiculous. It is.
3: Yeah, totally mad. And what about this thing called the shortage occupation list? I mean, I must be honest, I had no idea that such a thing existed. Um, I'm sure you probably did. But, I mean, um, is, is there any point in having that? Because it's almost like, well, here's a whole load of exceptions that we're just going to continue to add to uh, until actually the exceptions are bigger than the rule.
2: Well, I mean, you absolutely have to have it, given the current way immigration rules are set up, which is to basically say that um, you, the the, the Outside of the shortage occupation list, um, it's incredibly hard to get a a work visa, even if you're a skilled worker. Mm. Um, And there's all kinds of salary thresholds and caps that are already in place. Um, Up till now, it's been able to be a bit more limited because a lot of the sort of gaps have been filled by free movement with the EU, which is a very flexible immigration system that's allowed people to move wherever there's a demand for workers. Yeah with with that ending or that you know but that may not be that ending to that to end. that's
3: the other thing I mean there's no, nothing to suggest to me at the moment that that's ending
2: um well yeah I mean and I think that that's something that needs to be taken into account even with even with free movement in place there's always been a need for, for workers that, that come from overseas because you know from other countries outside Europe and mm. the short occupation lists have been a way of preventing certain industries from you know really going to the wall because of the restrictive immigration controls but it's as we were saying at the beginning it's just a terrible way of of doing things because it's bureaucratic it adds red tape it means that you basically got um, ministers and you know civil servants who have often no understanding of of the industries in question deciding how many workers they're allowed to have
3: right And also no real understanding of the jobs that they're wishing to fill. I mean, I'm seeing uh, examples of professions on the list, which include geophysicists, mining engineers, 3D computer animators, games. I mean, these are pretty specialised jobs. Uh, Cyber security experts. I mean, what if they get a load of applications from Russia? Are they just going to rubber stamp them and go, yeah, that's fine?
2: Well, exactly. I mean, I think this is one of those things where it's just, it doesn't make sense to have, um, you know, a, a bureaucratic office in Whitehall um, deciding which particular kinds of programmer are allowed in to the country right. that 's something that needs to adapt to you know what 's happening um, in the real world, and, and there 's absolutely no way that they're going to be able to keep up with with that flow of information or have the expertise they need to know what 's going to be best for the economy what 's going to be best for businesses right. that are trying to grow um, that are trying to grow and meet the needs of a global market.
3: And so what long, I mean, long term, I suppose, which I know very few governments ever really even look at, rather than barely mention the phrase long term. But I mean, we should presumably, because we keep hearing that there's going to be a shortage of GPs in the future, a shortage of nurses, even worse. So where, you know, where is the kind of the the long term thinking from this government or any government saying, well, surely if we're so reliant upon other nations to supply our workforce, maybe we should get better at training our own people up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a two-part process. And I think the problem with the government is that they've always been putting the cart before the horse, which is to say, we need to restrict immigration. And then somehow magically that will mean um, that British people will get better jobs. And in fact, if you restrict immigration, it just means that businesses contract, they move overseas, um, they can't grow in the way that they want to. What you need to do is have a flexible immigration system that, that treats people humanely, that works for people, and combine that with a genuine investment in the long term, in education, in skills training, in apprenticeships, in all of the things that mm. have been defunded in recent years, that means that people in this country who grow up in this country, um, who are educated in this country, are sort of are free to go for jobs here or to go for, compete for jobs abroad if they want to move yeah. as well. Um, and that's the sensible way of doing it. And instead, what we've seen is just. The government thinking, and and particularly under Theresa May, thinking that if you're just nasty to immigrants, somehow that solves the problems that we've been creating at home.
3: Well, I mean, politicians love a good uh, you know, crackdown on immigration, even if it means absolutely nothing, uh, because they think it sounds good and they think it might get them a few more votes in the next election. But the bottom line is, for example, I was talking to uh, George Elphick the other day, the MP for Dover, about these people coming from uh, uh, Iran and Iraq in dirigible boats, right? And uh, in the end, apparently, uh, the people who have come here are still here because they can't be sent back and they're coming to this country illegally.
2: But well, I mean it's not illegal to claim asylum um, so I, I, I would sort of dispute that slightly. I mean anyone is entitled to seek asylum and obviously at the end of that process it's up to, up to the home office and the government to decide if they're genuine um, if, if their claim is you know, is, is genuine or not? And no, but my, my it's point is, no,
3: my point is, Chai, that they're coming here yeah. from from countries from which they cannot be sent back to. So therefore, once they come here, there is no judgment to be made about them their right to remain because they can't be sent back. So they remain. Simple well, as that. Well, I
2: mean, that, if if they can't be sent back, I mean, the reason they can't be sent back to Iraq is because it's 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 a very dangerous country, and people, you know, are fleeing persecution from there. Um, so that does suggest that their claims are genuine.
3: No, no, I I'm get all that. that. I'm not. I mean, it's a different argument. All I'm saying is, is that you know they're making it much more difficult for people who are coming here to work than they are for people who are coming here for other reasons and who may be coming here illegally. Which tells you the system isn't working very well.
2: I think what we see is they're cracking down across the board, and I and I think what what we also see with our, with our work and and, and and the clients that we have is it, it doesn't matter if they've come here as a, um, a you know fleeing somewhere like Iraq or they've come here from America or from from france in the end what people what all, all people want to do is wherever they've come to this country they want to build lives here they want to get a job they want to work and they want to contribute um and so i think what what the government needs to recognize um is is very much the contribution that migrants make um and if there are problems at home um then i think you know what we've seen is a massive dereliction of, of duty and successive governments um, on on investing in people here. And remember that, for example, EU migration um, brings huge net benefits to the economy. What we've seen is those benefits to the economy have not been reinvested in the communities where people live, um, but have been siphoned off um, into tax cuts, um, into paying for the cost of austerity. Um, where I haven't seen the tax cuts. And the government cuts. then blames the migrants. Where are the tax
3: cuts, Chai? Sorry,
2: where have... Yeah, where, where, I'm sorry, I wish
3: I mean I wish there were some tax cuts. I am just wondering where they are.
2: Um I haven't seen any. So so well the highest income um the rate of highest income tax was cut, um under um Well you mean after the uh, Tories put
3: it up, they put it back yeah. down again.
2: Yes, at a yeah. time when so it came back to where it was than ever, Well but that's how tax but they works. Also, it goes well, up. Tax, and down, yeah, so yeah then, I know it does, but they also but the raised but they also the
3: raised the threshold so that you don't pay tax until you earn a lot more money. So it which swings benefit, around abouts,
2: which, it? which has been a benefit to people in work, but remember, the poorest people in this country are the ones who were already below that threshold in the first place. Sure. But it's and a good seen, thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. It's a, good thing. it's a good thing.
3: Yeah, but it's a good thing that you could now earn twelve thousand pounds without paying any tax for everybody,
2: isn't it? Um, it might well be, and I'm, I'm not sorry. I, I'm not. I'm not saying that that's not not a good thing. What I'm saying is that when you have um, migrants contributing to the economy then their contribution needs to be recognised. And if there are problems with investment in communities, like and you were talking about education and you were talking about our failure to have a good school system, um, then well, I'm, it's, well, I'm not, talking it's about, not good enough for the government to blame migrants. Well, I don't think they are. For the failures of I don't think invest-
3: they are. What I'm saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not yeah. trying to have an argument about migrants or migration. Mm. What I'm saying is, is if we are in such a poor state in this country that we need vets to be imported from overseas, then we're not training enough vets. It's quite simple. I agree. Simple. Well, you know, it's Absolutely not about whether we should stop immigration or not. It's just about a much more broad and sensible policy that no government up to now uh, in my lifetime has ever done.
2: No, I agree with that. I mean, what, the only thing I would say to that is that, of course, you should be training more people in areas where you need to and where people want um, you know, to, to work in those professions. But it's also not true to say that, I mean, we have always relied... Um, on on immigration for very essential parts of our our economy. The NHS would never have existed if it wasn't for, um, you know, Caribbean and people from the Indian subcontinent coming, you know, throughout the entire history of the NHS to work there because there have never been enough doctors and nurses who have been trained um, to fill... Yeah, but don't you think that if, that
3: if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and failing... Uh, that they should change it, but listen, Chai, we've got to run because uh, we've over we've overspent our time. Thank you very much indeed, Chai Patel, a uh, legal policy director uh, at the uh, direct at uh, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. You know, some of the things he says are true. Some of the things he says are not quite right. I have to say, surely, if we don't have enough doctors in this country, we train more of them. Simple as that. You don't keep going. Oh, we have to keep importing them from other countries because we haven't got enough. We've got plenty of people here. We've got plenty of people going to university here. But there's not enough of them becoming doctors. So why can't we fix that? 0344 a 1,000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Matthew Wright here with you at 1 o'clock. 0344 is the number. Uh, hello, has tweeted. He says, if going to university doesn't earn you more than 25000 a year very quickly, then don't bother going. Get a manual job and a manual trade and you'll earn that in six months. Well, that is some of the best advice I think I've ever seen. There is absolutely no point in trying to go and do a job Uh, with a degree that isn't going to get you any decent money. You've wasted three years of your life, you've got a massive debt, and now you've got a pretty useless job as well. Felix says, my wife teaches A-levels. There are plenty of kids wanting to do veterinary science or medicine who have the required A and A-plus grades, just no places at university. It's disgraceful. Well, what's going on? Let's talk to Gerard, uh, who wants to talk about it. Hi, Gerard in crew.
5: Hello, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm okay, thank you. It all comes down to investment and more short-term planning than the next who's the next leader of the Conservative Party so that applies to all of them in a past life I did a job that arranged benefits for people and in one our local hospital had a recruitment exercise abroad to get GPs, sorry doctors in and consultants because they couldn't in this country there weren't enough trained Mm. so quite rightly they brought their families with them children and aged parents and I arranged benefits in one week for three sets of parents which is, in all of them, in excess of £35,000 per annum, times that by three just for that week alone, and that was £105,000 per annum in benefits. Now, when I pointed out that to my MP, he told me to keep my nose out of it ever so politely. Very, really,
3: that's nice, isn't it?
5: Yeah, because all I said was, that money could have been used to train some GPs, and we could have trained them at the expense of the state so they didn't rack up the debts themselves. Right. And that way you'd have got more people going into the profession. Well, this is what they they say, isn't
3: it? This is what they say about the sort of the hidden part and the hidden cost, if you like, of immigration, because it's all very well to say freedom of movement is necessary. Yes, it is. Freedom of job opportunities, yes. There's always a cost. But but hang on a second, because what if that person who's coming into work wants to bring their family with them? And you go, well, of course they should be able to bring their wife and kids, but what about their parents? What about their siblings? You know, suddenly it seems very unclear to me what the policy is.
5: Well, when I tried to do the books with them and said, well, look, in some of these families, they had three or four children. So I said, how much is it per child that you allow for costs on that? So I said, let's conservatively say 5,000 each for three children. That's 15,000 15, a year on top. Right. Before you think this is immigration bashing, look, I've got two dogs who occasionally get barked on your show when Sunderland mm. fans have gone past.
3: I've heard that, yeah. You won't see too many yeah. Sunderland fans now after their second loss in a row, of course, in the <laughs> playoff
5: final. No, thought so I'd slip and- that one in. <laughs> yeah, and the, well done. But the vets that they see are both from abroad, and they're fantastic, and I owe a debt to them because they've saved their lives. Yes. There's one British vet in that practice, And he has to do another job after hours to cover his debts because he's got massive student debt. That's mad, isn't isn't it? it. But listen,
3: you know, I'm like you. I don't want people to think that I'm anti-immigration. I'm not anti-immigration at all. I mean, as I've often said, there are plenty of people who are indigenous to this country who were born here who I'd be more than happy to export to another country because they're completely useless. However... Meanwhile, I also understand that we are a relatively small country and you can't just keep importing people with families just because you need to fill one veterinary practice's job. You bring in six people. Correct. You know, that's where
5: it's wrong. You won't catch me arguing with that because I keep, as I've said before, there's always a cost, nothing is for free. Right. And we need to invest in our own... Keep bringing immigrants in. Get some of the immigrants to train our our British kids. Sure. But invest in our kids for the future and stop thinking short term. The attitude was was that this money was coming out of the Department of Work and Pensions benefits uh, budget, so it didn't matter. The hospital wasn't concerned. It was off their books, the fact that it was being supplemented by you and me with extra benefits, yes, so it's always
3: a cost. How about this, right? Jeff has just sent this in by Twitter. My daughter's a veterinary nurse. Did her qualifications via day release at college. She could have gone. She could have done the same at university, but she got paid a salary, got three years work experience, and came out with the same qualification and no debt. Her friends doing the same course at uni have now owe uh, thirty thousand pounds. And that's another interesting uh, way to do it, isn't it?
5: Well, it's another way to do it, but you've also got companies who rely on bringing in immigration because they don't have to train them up. There's a cost of training. it's yes. uh, sort off the books, let somebody else do the training for them, the cost of training. Uh, it's off their books. And then when you bring it in, you don't have to pay them as much either because it'll be supplemented by the taxpayer.
3: Yes, absolutely right. It's fascinating, this stuff. I always love uh, talking to people like Gerard because he always brings something to the party, which is what a lot of people do uh, on this show. Gerard, thanks for your call. <laughs> This is the Independent Republic and Mike Graham is going kind to of Spice Girls vibe to the show today, isn't there? It's a sort of, uh, it's a very much of a feminine touch going on, which is very nice. 0344 499 uh, is the number to call. We've got lots and lots of uh, uh, people to talk to. We haven't got a great deal of time to do it. And Matthew Wright coming up, of course, at one o'clock. We'll be bringing you uh, all sorts of things throughout the day here uh, at Talk Radio. He's in the company of Kevin O'Sullivan. Uh, we're going to speak to Mark Dolan in a moment about the comedy brain, which appears to have gone missing. I don't know where, why or where it is, uh, but uh, let's talk to Rudy first in Exeter. Hello, Rudy. Hi, Mike. Nice to speak to you again. Nice to speak to you. What do you want to say?
5: I want to say that
1: I'm really annoyed about this person prosecuting um, Boris Johnson, and he goes with this line that it's, he doesn't know people that lie. So why isn't he taking out a private
4: prosecution against George Osborne uh-huh. that lied continually
3: uh, that you know, people are going
4: to
5: lose their jobs, yes. the GDP is going to go down, this is going to happen that's going to happen and he was the Chancellor Exchequer that had access to all the information hello
2: hello hello across the UK online and on DAB the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio
3: if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on talk radio via DAB online or via the talk radio app